3: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. We're saving our own lives edition. It's Valentine's Day. It's Wednesday, February 14th, 2024 on today's show. The Greatest Night in Pop is a documentary on Netflix. It's a documentary about the We Are the World charity single, the making of it, the night that the biggest names in pop assembled, checked their egos at the door and ground it out after hours. The enduring pop single for African Famine Relief And then Rustin is, uh, it's also on Netflix, it's a biopic of the great and unjustly forgotten Bayard Rustin. It stars Coleman Domingo, who is nominated for Best Actor. And finally, gruesome, prurient, a little shameful, perhaps, Slate has published The True Crime Canon, which we discuss with one of its authors, the journalist Shana Roth. But first joining me today is Julia Turner. Hey, Julia, welcome back.
2: Hello, hello. I'm so glad to be back.
3: It's wonderful to hear your voice. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
1: Is it good to have me back? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I
3: I forgot you were away. It's like you're always with me, Dana. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, shall we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, the documentary, The Greatest Night on Pop on Netflix is about the making of the 1985 charity single, We Are the World was recorded on January 28th, 1985. It assembled 40 of the most famous pop musicians, not only at the time, but really in history. It's amazing how that list, that roster, has stood the test of time. The prime motivating forces behind it, creatively at least, were Lionel Richie, Quincy Jones, and Michael Jackson, to which they quickly added, I mean, you name them, like Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, on and on and on. It's like a living wax museum, basically, Well, now using a terrific store of archival footage leading into the session and uh, within, inside the session itself, this documentary has been made. It just brings you right back to the world of 80s pop. In the clip, we're going to hear it's Lionel Richie reminiscing about the writing of We Are the World and his collaboration with Michael Jackson. Let's listen. He said, I think we have Billy Joel. And we got Willie. Willie. I think we have Tina, Huey Lewis, Paul Simon, Diana Ross, Ray Charles. That's just pressure, 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 pressure. And we're gonna do this the night of
1: the American Music Awards. What are you talking about? And then Quincy comes
3: by. Yeah, here we go. So Quincy very quietly just said, I need a song. I don't know how it happened after that. We were just possessed. Throwing things out and whatever felt
1: good. I came in with a few chords. Say da-da, and all God's family. We want it now, da-da-da, for all time. And Michael said, whole. Oh, whoa."
3: Julia, let me start with you. I mean, when a documentary like this gets made and it's just littered with bold-faced names, some, you know, supposedly iconic moment from our pop cultural past heritage, it tends to have a lot of retrospective hype to it. This may be one of those instances where the scale and intensity of the hype are merited. What did you think?
2: Oh, I I actually think the key to this documentary's success is the modesty of its ambition, which is funny because We Are the World is sort of an immodest venture, right? <laughs> like, we'll gather all the biggest names in pop and we'll save Africa. <laughs> you know, like the whole thing is both well-meaning not a force for bad in the world in any way did raise money did help on some level but also just kind of ridiculous as a venture in in its in its overblownness and so the the thing i admired most about this documentary which i very much enjoyed is the rigorous modesty of its frame which is it knows what it has a lot of footage from this very unusual night and very tightly, it just sets up a kind of tick-tock of like, how did this come together and what happened? And it does not zoom out to look at, you know, what was the rise of the charity single in this era? And it does not zoom out the other direction either, too much to say, how much good did this or did this not do in the world? It just knows that it has this trove of footage of these stars interacting and a wonderful kind of showman Virgil narrator in Lionel Richie, who's the kind of lead commentator um, describing how the night came together. And it's so fun. <laughs> There's just so many great no- moments in it. I really enjoyed this doc because it does not try to do more than it does. And it just showcases the, it, it's a very plain setting for the, the the gems of the footage that it's built off of.
1: I completely agree. It's highly enjoyable. I think that some of the critics who called it too much of a puff piece have a point. And there is one direction that I think it could have zoomed a little bit out more. I I agree with you that it's all about this trove of found footage and watching those people in that room on that night. I think that that feels like there's a bit of a filter on the interviews, the latter day interviews that people are giving and that everybody is casting it in a very glowing light. There's one moment when somebody, I think it was somebody on the soundboard end, like one of the producers, <laughs> mutteringly makes the remark that Al Jarreau, who's one of the singers, was drunk when he came to the mic. And that was why he couldn't nail his lines at first. And a critic writing about this brought up the very good question, like, is that really all the drinking and or drug abuse that was going on? It's the night of the AMAs, the American Music Awards, during an all-night recording that lasted until dawn in the mid-1980s. It seems a bit unbelievable. So I think that there's some probably image ironing happening in those latter-day interviews. And mainly, I feel like this, this movie really fell apart just in the last 10 minutes when it talked about the reception of the song. You know, I mean, I didn't need it to be some sort of huge sociological analysis of all charity singles, but... Suddenly there were just sort of these, again, you know, very glossy titles appearing saying, oh, it raised X much money and it raised this much consciousness. And in fact, they were the world, you know, it just really rubber stamps the uh, the mission, you know, the rosy mission of the singers in the room without sort of giving any sense of how that impact happened, like how was the money specifically raised? Where did it come from? Over what period of time did the song roll out? And and I remember as somebody who was a teenager when We Are the World broke, that the video, the MTV video was a huge part of it. And there's almost no footage from that or just sort of a sense of how often it was in rotation or what it meant to be, you know, a huge hit on MTV at that time. So I guess I I was sort of waiting for there to be a little... 15-minute segment on the reception of the video and what happened after it dropped that just very much turned into a pat-pat, then it was all great, the end.
3: Uh, let me pick out a moment that I loved from it that uh, reinforces what Julia was saying about its modesty. So you assemble, as I said, you know, this kind of living, I mean, really a stunning array of, of talent and fame and uh, potentially egoism uh, run amok in one room. And there's this remarkable moment where Diana Ross, and for listeners who are maybe a little bit younger, Diana Ross, there was a period, especially in the '80s, where Diana Ross was just at the perfect crux that 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 kind of brought together fame superstardom based on new material and superstardom based on you know an astonishing legacy of work, right, from '60s Motown. But there was this resurgence in the '80s that made her as big a star as michael jackson as someone to be as much in awe of as anybody in that room and she walks over to daryl hall a blue-eyed soul singer hall and Oates, you know pop star of you know very high renown but not in that kind of league and she says daryl i really 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 love your work will you autograph my sheet music And the dam bursts, and suddenly all these super famous people are asking one another for their autographs, and it's just such a human moment. And what I love about this documentary most is that a star is a star because in the full flush of their stardom. They feel as though they sprang fully formed from the head of Zeus or whatever. I mean, they just... The Bruce Springsteen of 1984, born in the USA, he was, just, he was always that guy. Of course, he wasn't always that guy. It's a t- fabrication in some sense. They also are and have to be craftspeople. They are by and large supremely talented, and it takes an enormous amount of grit. If you've ever known someone who went from zero to 60 as a music star, and I've known one such person, it's an incredible amount of grit, perseverance to do it. And then everyone forgets it because it's as if they were already there. And I love about this documentary the sheer amount of kismet and grit it took to pull it off. You First, they had to write an earwormy single in no time flat, like literally a matter of a few days. And Michael Jackson, like... I do not want to open that can of worms, but he he is a bit of a you know flake in some way, and getting him to focus. Lionel Richie was the CEO of this entire thing in some sense, um, and he did it. He got him to focus. He got Stevie Wonder to answer their, their phone calls, and they pulled pulled that off. And then second, you just had to. The logistics of assembling this amount of talent, and they got very lucky in that the American Music Awards, which were then quite huge, were happening on that night. Everyone was going to be in LA, getting them all to agree to, after the awards ceremony, which Lionel Richie hosted, in itself, exhausting. I would need a week and a half to recover if I hosted live television event that was two or three hours long. Then an all-night recording session, and then to pull it off with all of these, I mean, presumably highly egotistical people in the room. That in and of itself is amazing. And to be in the room is like the Beatles documentary. It's, the, it's like one of those, I, I think, truly magical fly-on-the-wall experiences. And whatever one thinks about the song... <laughs> which is, you know, it's a jingle. It's been called a jingle. Yeah, it is a jingle, but it was just, it was nonetheless a remarkable accomplishment. I loved this documentary. I think people should watch it.
2: Yeah, there are so many great moments like those ones, Steve. And Dana, to your point about where it goes, I mean, I agree. It it actually is interesting. I watched the video after the doc finished, and it makes you think about the choice that the doc makes to not just show you the video at the end of it. Like, what did this all turn into? Cause the song, you never quite hear the song sung as recorded the whole way through. The The final playing of the song is sort of includes a lot of like sing-alongs and people around the world thrilling to this kind of mediocre treacle, which is not a song that I love. And part of what's fun about the movie is that in addition to showcasing all of these egos jostling, it also shows Quincy Jones at work, like orchestrating musically what is happening in the room and and taking seriously musically what is happening in the song, which I have never taken particularly seriously as a piece of music. You begin to appreciate like the the singing craft and the vocal craft mm, and, and yes. um sort of all the all the massaging of it and i I came away from it <laughs> despite having heard snippets of it you know dozens of times in the course of the ninety odd minutes of the film like liking the song more which is interesting like any piece Me of too. music that you start thinking like ugh i don't like that song i'm not interested in that and then you you kind of end up really admiring uh, the vocal craft of Kim Carnes not a musician i'd ever known much or thought much about uh it, it's just a trifle but a really enjoyable one um i feel like i feel like this stock could potentially be somewhere in the hype cycle of getting to overhyped and then it might feel slight. So see it before you hear more good things about it. It's a very enjoyable evening on the couch.
1: Totally agree, Julia. Don't ask too much from it, and it will it will give you everything. I just wanted to shout out what I consider the comic relief of both this documentary and the video, which I remember well in high school when it came on MTV. My brother, sister, and I would gather around the TV waiting for the shots where Bob Dylan's face appears. <laughs> <in the light. laughs>
3: oh, poor Bob. Oh, poor because Bob. Because he
1: seems so uncomfortable. I mean, even just speaking from the video alone, not having known about any of the backstory, just there's something so funny about his tiny... Very uncomfortable looking face, unsmilingly standing there in the ranks singing. And then just his little solo, which I remember was it was a thing. It was like a meme before the Internet to in- imitate the Bob Dylan solo. We make a brighter day, just you and me. <laughs> <laughs> but the amazing part of the documentary is that you see the backstory to that, that ha- why he was uncomfortable, how they dealt with it. You see him nervously at the mic, unable, just mumbling, mumbling his lyrics. Yeah. He doesn't know what to do. And then there's this wonderful moment. I won't even spoil it. It's too good. It's the high point of the documentary. But what Bob Dylan does to deal with his nerves and how it gets resolved and with whom is just such a a marvelous reveal.
3: Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to go far. It's on Netflix. It's the greatest night in pop. Uh, Check it out. We'd love to know what you thought of it.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover.
3: All right, well, Bayard Rustin was a name that I recognized from my early, early youth, but to whom I could attach nothing else. I couldn't attach anything to the name until seeing... This film, the film Rustin, which amply fills in what people I now think should know about him. He was a critical figure of the civil rights movement, a very close associate of Martin Luther King's, who, as the movie has it, put Dr. King onto to the history of nonviolence and civil disobedience, getting him to read and think about Thoreau and Gandhi, and conceived of and organized what is arguably King's defining moment, the March on Washington, The movie explores in depth another fact about Rustin, that he was gay, and not just gay, but gay in J. Edgar Hoover's America, like deeply, deeply in the era of the closet and the repercussions of coming out. And more pointedly, among other black civil rights leaders, Rustin was often treated with distrust and even outright contempt. The film stars Coleman Domingo as Rustin. It's an Oscar-nominated performance, and the film's directed by George C. Wolfe, who, you know, I think to this day is still probably slightly better known as a theater director, head of the public theater for a long time, directed the original Angels in America, but he's also a filmmaker— in the scene we're about to hear, Rustin, played by Domingo, is sitting in on a planning session for what will become the march, the March on Washington. Though he promised to, quote, sit in the corner and smile, we hear him butting heads with the NAACP executive secretary, Roy Wilkins, who's played by Chris Rock. All right, let's listen. Fire. I was under the impression you're a busy servant. I mean, saving white people from the bomb. <laughs> I go where needed. Chief, if memory serves me, this is your third attempt. He did not say attempt. Did you say something? Attempt is hardly the word I'd use to describe the actions of a man who's single-handedly responsible for integrating both the armed forces and the defense industry.
0: Roy. Yes, sir?
3: Most of our folks in Mississippi have never been outside of their hometowns. So the opportunity to march with people from all over will afford them the chance to discover not only are they not alone, he gets it. But are engaged in a struggle far greater than they ever dreamed. Thank you, Brother Evers. All right, Dana, let me start with you. Very curious to know what you made of this of this movie and, and of course, of the performance.
1: I mean, the performance is the reason to see the movie. It's it's sensational. It's almost so good that it puts the rest of the performances or some of the other performances uh, in... in a negative relief, I will say that. And I think that the clip we just listened to displays that to a certain extent. And the moments that it feels more like a applauding traditional biopic, I think, tend to be the moments with historical figures that aren't Coleman Domingo as Bayard Rustin. One example being the guy who plays Martin Luther King. He's an actor I didn't know before. His name is Amal Amin. He's okay. (laughs) He does not bring anything exceptional to that characterization. And if you've seen, you know, for example, Jeffrey Wright's Martin Luther King, Jeffrey Wright also has a small role in this movie. He's, as always, is fantastic. But it sort of displays a low energy in some of these other actors. And one of them is Chris Rock, who you hear in that clip, who has a big part. He's sort of the nemesis of of Rustin within the movement. Uh, He's Roy Wilkins, who's high up in the NAACP. And all I could think the whole time was like, there's Chris Rock in a gray wig. <laughs> there he is, being Chris Rock. <laughs> I mean, God bless Chris Rock as a comedian. I don't know that I need to see him in a major dramatic role in a historical biopic. It just, it just that one didn't work for me at all. So I think this movie's kind of uneven in that way. I will say that what I appreciate about it, besides Coleman Domingo's fantastic central performance, is that it does a lot with a fairly small budget right it's trying to be about the organization of a march that included hundreds of thousands of people and it it is just not a, a big blockbuster enough to actually restage the march so it finds some kind of clever ways around that and i appreciate that a lot of the below the line talent here is gay you know it's 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 fairly rare unbelievably enough for an out gay actor to play an out gay character. And that happens in this movie. But also the writers, Dustin Lance Black and Julian Brees are also gay, as is the director, George C. Wolf, who's more known as a theater director. And I felt like the glimpses of of gay life that we got during that era had a grittiness that we might not necessarily see in this this type of biopic. For example, the fact that Bayard Rustin is not a monogamous gay man. I mean, he, he has one other activist who's sort of his on-and-off ongoing boyfriend, but, you know, I think a lot of the movie is about him having this roving eye and going to gay bars and what that was like in the early 60s. And that part of the movie, I thought, brought a grit that they, some of those political discussions like the ones we just heard didn't have.
3: Julia, what about you? What do you What do you think of this?
2: Well, I do think this movie is worth watching. It has a bit of a like potted history lesson quality, and I I can't say that it's the greatest movie I saw in twenty of the twenty twenty three crop. But um, the performance is fantastic, and I think even just um, the depiction of this historical activist and social figure, as compared to the depiction of Harvey Milk and Dustin Lance Black's prior work, it shows the evolution of there being able to be a little bit more of a range of gay life portrayed and not judged. And I will say, despite the fact that it's a little, maybe corny is the word, I I found it very moving. You know, the, the, the film opens with a moment where Rustin's queerness means he is kind of tossed out of the movement because it's considered too problematic. And it, um, as it ends, there is both more defense and acceptance of that queerness, but there's also a limit to it. And those moments, I think because of Domingo's performance are very emotionally effective. And I was very moved by them. And then it's also just interesting to watch a movie about this particular moment in American history and politics and in the history of civil rights in America that feels almost rose tinted in its hopefulness i mean obviously it's it's so dark but it there's like a constructive and collaborative spirit in in obviously organizing the march and in what we're seeing and to watch that story at a moment when we are facing the year that we are facing and the <laughs> political climate we are facing highlighted sort of the bleakness of our present moment for me. I also think it's worth noting that the producers of this film are higher ground, the Obama's production company. You know, the film concludes with the note that Rustin was awarded posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom 50 years later. It fails to add comma by barack obama the producer of this film but i think it does kind of like go to the tone like it almost feels like the material you could play at a ceremony like that like here's the story of this guy who was a very important figure in american history and here you go here he is with a great performance at the center
3: yeah julia corny was one of the words i wrote in you know, in my notes when I was watching it, it's stagey, it sort of tends to be oratorically grand at points, sentimental, bit of a wiki entry. I didn't care. I really loved it. I was very moved by it, and I was so grateful that thanks to Coleman Domingo's nomination, we included it in our Oscar run-up. It's in that funny genre of movies where you know the ending going in, like Blackberry was such a great example of that, the unjustly somewhat ignored uh, comedy from a couple years ago because you know this gigantic meteor is heading towards the earth to kill all the dinosaurs, known as the iPhone. You know it ends with Blackberry being a device that ends up in landfill uh, and doesn't matter. It's like sort of how you get there. Similarly, you know that this movie ends with the hugely successful March on Washington. And so the running joke throughout the film is they think they're going to get tens of thousands, maybe. Maybe it could be 50. And and then the number just keeps swelling and swelling. And of course, 250,000 people go to the mall in Washington, D.C. to hear uh, Dr. King give the uh, I Have a Dream speech. Every movement needs a detail-oriented charismatic to bring it off, and that wasn't King. He was the charismatic to end all charismatics. It took Rustin behind the scenes, so getting that, it's not a gritty procedural. That's It's all very broadly drawn, but it's a reminder that that kind of work is necessary. A, a movement needs to show publicly absolute unity, even though behind the scenes there's an immense amount of ego jockeying, uh, ideological jockeying, and fighting. And this is also a movie about the closet, right? It's, it's almost as much about the state of the closet and the state of the closet within the extent this can be a, called a stand-in for it, the state of the closet in black America in the in the late 50s, early 60s. It all comes together with this single idea that Rustin is exactly that detailed charismatic. He is the man who more or less conceived of and executed this march. He was necessary to it. And given the mores of the time, he was a huge liability that could have killed it. And that actually is quite an interesting dilemma confronting everybody, including Rustin. And there are moments where someone says, in like, okay, not perfectly good conscience by the standards of 2024, but not in totally ill conscience, says, well, what if you're outed, right? Does the whole thing go down with you? Can we afford to have that happen? And the movie, to its credit, like presents that question as a real question. Like J. Edgar Hoover is going to know this about you. And I was really impressed by, stagey as it was, every time Rustin's answer was very powerful. It was theatrical. I felt like I was watching a staged play at moments. I didn't care. I found that profoundly moving. It's it's all the things a critic would say about it, and I just did not care. I was swept up in the performance and simply learning about this man and what these conflicts and struggles were.
2: I also loved the focus on the logistical detail. Like it was kind of a a caper, but the caper is like, are there enough latrines and did we staple all the signs together correctly? And are the loudspeakers going to (laughs) work? You know? Um, And it, and I also felt in that, the Obama producer touch, right? Like, famously got his start as a community organizer. This is like a pick glamorizing the work of organizing, right? Like, what is it to organize? Actually, like, we find a cheap space, we clean it out with brooms ourselves. The script is not always soaring, but the plotting and what it chooses to spend attention on, I think are smart. And I enjoyed those moments as well
3: ok, Dana, before we go, just the crudest of all questions. I know it's going to make you cringe is uh, is Domingo going to win this award?
1: Uh, I'm so bad at prognosticating, but I think <laughs> it seems it seems very unlikely. The movie itself, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's it's' the movie itself would need to have more recognition across the slate of categories, I think, for him to be really in the running. also, although he's been around for a while in character roles, he's relatively new, probably as, you know, a sort of n- big name in in a lot of voters' minds. So, I seriously doubt it. But what I hope it does is get Coleman Domingo more roles for the Oscar that he will one day win.
3: Here, here. Okay, Bruston, it's on Netflix. I think people should watch this movie. All right. Uh, if you do, let us know what you thought of it. Let's move on. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored
0: by Cloud Optimizer.
3: As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. All right. Well, the creators of true crime and the fans who consume it will always exist in an ethical gray zone. Haters of the genre complain that it's voyeuristic, intrusive, and crudely sensational. And they have a point. So writes Laura Miller in the new Slate feature about true crime, the enduring and unkillable genre were designed by one of the contributors to that package Shayna Roth, author of Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection, Unidentified Serial Killers, Unsolved Kidnappings, and Mysterious Murder. Shayna, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
3: You guys assembled a gigantic list of some of the classics of the true crime genre along the way. Of course, what happens is you start to develop something like a set of pet theories or abstractions from the list about what the genre is, what generates it, why the thirst for it is so unquenchable. Tell me a little bit about putting the list together. And as you went on, what did you discover about something you already knew a lot about?
0: What we were trying to do with the list was to essentially create not your average true crime list. This wasn't necessarily the most popular pieces of true crime over the last however many decades. It's not even necessarily the most important pieces of true crime, although I think a lot of these you could argue are incredibly important We were thinking of this as here is a list of what every true crime fan or even somebody who's interested in dabbling in true crime should consume. And we wanted to have a wide array, not only of types of media, so there's podcasts, there's magazine articles, there's documentaries. We also wanted to have an array of types of crime. So I think a lot of people, when they think of true crime, they immediately think of murder or serial killers. And we wanted to show that true crime is a lot more than that. There's a lot of different things going on from multiple eras. And I think that what Laura really touched on very well in that opening is that each of these stories, as she says, tells us something about the nature of the world and the fabric of our social order, helping us peer beyond the limits of our own experience into the darkness. We wanted to have pieces that really got into some of that nitty gritty and kind of showed why people are so interested in what these pieces of true crime mean sort of generationally and and also culturally.
3: One immediately asks, because it's such an enduringly popular form, why people love it. And as Laura says straight up front, um, and as you've indicated, there's a guilty pleasure aspect to it, a prurience, a kind of voyeuristic or even necrophilic aspect to it. It's not only that, people of totally good uh, moral and creative conscience are attracted to it. Having assembled the list, like, did you get to an answer of why this genre is just so powerfully attractive? In some ways, in the balance, is it, as savory or more savory than it is unsavory?
0: I think that we're never going to have a specific answer to that question because I think there's a lot of different reasons that people consume true crime. And I think it's individual to each person. For some people, they like it because it is so different from the world that they inhabit. And it's sort of, as you said, like a voyeuristic way of safely going into this other realm that they feel would not be a part of their life. For other people, it's very much a protective sort of thing. It's this idea that if I'm reading about it, I am learning from it and then if something like this were to ever happen to me, I would be prepared. And and for some people, it's just they love a mystery. There are some people who like true crime and they only like cold cases because they're so fascinated by the mystery of what happened. And I think Crime in general, it really gets to our basic nature in a way. Crime is something that has been around since the dawn of man. I mean, we think of like biblical stories like Cain and Abel. Crime is something that I think people have always been fascinated by because of that human element of it, because there's no way to do it the same way twice. Um, You know, there's just so much to the true crime world that there's a million different reasons for people to be interested in it because there's a million different people consuming it.
2: Can I confess the prejudice I brought into this list and my response to it, which surprised me, which is that I, I do not think of myself as a true crime person. I love fictional crime. I've literally watched all of the law and order that exists. I love to read mysteries before bedtime, but I think of myself as having the same problem with true crime that I sometimes have with documentary, which is that I can't quite turn off my journalism brain which is like analyzing is the way in which these supposedly true facts being strung together, rigorous, is it accurate? Is it ethical? Is it smart? And, like, almost none of the things on your list are things that in my head I would think of as, quote, true crime. I just think of them as, like, really good journalism. Like, there's just a lot of really good crime journalism on the list, which maybe just means that I... Um, a snob who should just recognize that very good crime journalism is true crime. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I love that story. I love that story. I remember when that story won that big award. That's one of my favorite books in the world <laughs> Like um, about people who eat darkness. So your very smart list forced me to confront my own snobbery about the idea that true crime almost inherently involves kind of like murderino style, hyperbolic Sloppiness. <laughs> so, did were there any kind of like messy, sloppy m- true crime hits? You c- d- did you have debates about that? Like, what, were those uh, types of work obvious no's? or did you guys consider including some of the messier, sloppier true crime classics in the in the more lurid sense?
0: So, I will confess something which is and very which is very behind the scenes. I, I was the advocate for trash on <laughs> this list <laughs> <laughs> um, There were a few pieces where I was like, "Look, I know that this is not the staircase. This is not in cold blood, but maybe we should have it on there and Laura and Hillary were very good about being like, "No, we want this to be a very um." you know, sort of thinking person's list. We don't want to bring in anything that has been compromised, you know, things that haven't withstood withstood the test of time, things that would not be considered, as you said, good journalism. You know, we have an array, and some of these pieces are very fun. I think McMillions is an incredibly fun documentary about a essentially mob offspring or offshoot that uh, defrauded the McDonald's Monopoly game. It's a blast. And so there's some of that on there, too. But we wanted to really make sure that all of it was legitimate, that all of it was—and not to say that there's a lot of other true crime that's not legitimate, but, you know, we wanted to make sure that it had this structure to it that— Years and years and years from now, we believe that people will still be interested in these stories and in these pieces, that these are the pieces that will continue to withstand the test of time as true crime continues to be the genre that everybody loves. But I will admit that I tried to argue for an episode of The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City when uh, (laughs) Jen Shaw got arrested. I'm just going to throw that out there. Shayna, I'm going to ask about a couple of omissions from the list that surprised
1: me. And please understand that this is not in the mode of like a, a commenter, <laughs> a commenter on an article who's saying, how dare you make this list? And right. I'm, right. I'm not advocating for these things, but they just seemed like sort of staples of the true crime genre. One is Serial, the podcast that arguably made true crime a thing in podcasting and also, you know, lifted the boats of a lot of other podcasts back when it came out. Uh, so Serial's not on there. And I wanted to hear what that discussion was like and and why you didn't place it on the list. I also was expecting something about the Jeffrey McDonald murder, just because um, Fatal Vision, the Joe McGinnis book about that that murder was such a huge bestseller and kind of changed the genre. And then Janet Malcolm came along and wrote a sort of meta analysis of the case called The Journalist and the Murderer, which is also a classic book. So I'm wondering also if you talked about putting either or both of those books on the list.
0: So I know, I knew that Serial was going to be the one that. If we didn't put it on the list, we were going to get a lot of reply guys being like, how could you? Why is... And like, that is a big question. Like, why isn't Serial on this list? And we went back and forth on Serial quite a bit. And my argument for including Serial was, was sort of what you're saying. It's important. It is important that Serial happened because of what it did for the true crime genre, because it really brought... These people that are interested in this, in consuming this type of media, it really brought them out of the shadows. It made true crime popular, mainstream, what have you. But if you go back and listen to Serial as we did, it doesn't hold up. You know, there's been a lot that has happened since Serial, it, both in regards to that case and also in regards to how we cover true crime. And this really aggressive insertion of the journalist into the story and how much that colored the story and colored what was shown and told. To us, that does not hold up. That did not meet the standards that we were looking for, for this particular list. And then Fatal Vision, I know that we briefly discussed it. I don't recall exactly what our conversation was about it. But at the end of the day we had twenty five spots. And I think this was one of those where something else just beat it out. We were also trying to have an array. So we didn't want to have too many books. We didn't want to have too many podcasts. We didn't want to have too many of one thing. And so we were trying to find like the absolute best of the best in those mediums and also with those particular cases. So, you know, the absolute best of of true crime or true crime serial killing, etc.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, arguably, Fatal Vision has just as many problems as serial, but, right. but I would just point people to the journalist and the murderer if you really want to do some sort of meta contemplation of the whole notion of the ethics of crime writing.
3: Well, right. And also, in terms of problems involving the teller and the veracity of the tale, it's just there from the beginning. And, you know, it, the argument being that In Cold Blood by Truman Capote kind of initiates the genre. And it's, purportedly a nonfiction novel, but it's just been massively, large parts of it, key parts of it have been debunked along the way. It strikes me about this genre that, you know, one ought to bring one's bullshit detector to it, you know, over and over again, things that are too good to be true tend to be not true. And yet, it's also a genre to which people, like, They check their bullshit detector at the door. They just love it too much. They want the good story and they want to believe it's true. Like, Where where do you come out on that as a journalist?
0: So I think that people should approach true crime with the same amount of skepticism that they should approach really any sort of media. You know, you want to look at where this piece of true crime is coming from. You want to look at who is behind the creation of it. You want to look and see what... Are they telling you, but also what aren't they telling you? Is there anything that they are keeping from you that would show a bias one way or the other by the creators of it? Which is, I think, something that we should you know have a healthy robust media literacy for all types of journalism and i think the other thing that people really need to keep in mind when they are consuming true crime is that they themselves are not detectives and i think that's something that we kind of touched on a little bit where there is an there is a problem and this is something that the true crime community does get lambasted for from time to time with armchair detectives you know people who come in and think well i know better And I'm going to fix this, solve this, whatever. And there's been a lot of, not a lot, but there has been some cases that have been very much compromised uh, because of that. So I think that it's important to not only have your bullshit detector on, but to also remember that you are a spectator in all of this. You are somebody who is consuming, you know, real events that happen to real people and if you choose to go too far with your theories, with your Reddit boards, with your what have you, you can cause real damage.
3: All right. Well, Shayna, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this uh, Slate feature. Shayna Roth is the author of Cold Cases, a true crime collection. Check it out. But wait, Shana, before you go, you have a new book out. Can you describe it?
0: I do. It's called Between Two Wars, Mysterious Disappearances, High Profile Heists, Baffling Murders, and More. It is a journey through true crime from the end of the Civil War to the beginning of World War II. There's a lot of really interesting and exciting cases from the death of President Garfield to the disappearance of Agatha Christie to the first moving train robbery. I would love it if people would check it out. Oh my God, that's another list. I
1: want, I want a list going all the way back to the Civil War.
3: <laughs> awesome. Shana, thanks again. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Jane. What uh, What do you have?
1: All right. Well, the two weeks that I was gone from the show, I was on a trip to California, which means that I got on a plane twice. And as we all know, watching movies on a plane is one of the greatest ways to watch movies now in this new era that planes have so many movies on offer. Right. I mean, it's so many more than it used to be. I'd kind Mm -hmm. of consider it a chance to catch up on things I've missed from recent years. And that's what I did of one of the three movies that I watched on planes in the last two weeks. One was one that I now wish that we had done on the show, but I'm pretty sure we didn't. So last year, 2023, I remember us talking about this and talking about doing it and deciding not to. But there were three big movies that came out about businesses, (laughs) about recent sort of, you know, financial or business, you know, scandals or events. One of them Steve just mentioned on the show this week, BlackBerry. We talked about BlackBerry. On a week that I wasn't on the show last year, you guys talked about Air, the movie about, about Nike. But we never talked about Dumb Money because it was the third of the three that came along. And we said, "Uh, oh, we've already done two business movies this year. Let's skip Dumb Money.
2: No, we did. We talked about it. We talked about it a week. You weren't here.
1: <laughs> oh, crap. All right. Well, then I guess my endorsement is meaningless. But I think Dumb Money is really, really good. And it may be the plain upgrade, but uh, I just thought the movie worked all together. I was delighted by all the – you wouldn't even call them cameos – just all the – stars in every single role. I just love a movie where every time the camera cuts to a new situation, you're sort of saying, oh, wait a minute. Is that Nick Offerman? Wait, is that Is that America Ferreira? Is that Vincent D'Onofrio? Like everybody is in this movie, even if only for a few minutes. And I feel like everyone is on the same page of getting what is funny and interesting and charming about this real life story about a a stock squeeze. But now I feel like my endorsement has been completely eviscerated because you've talked about it on the show already. (laughs) Anyway, dumb money. It's tons of fun.
3: That was amazing. All right, Julia, what do you have?
1: Okay, so as our
2: regular and attentive listeners will know, I've spent most of the last year reading Michael Connelly and really immersing myself in his version of Los Angeles. Where did I grow up? Boston. Whose writing have I literally never consumed a single word of? Dennis Lehane. Yeah. Um, And I finally picked up and read Small Mercies, which is, uh, I think, one of his newer books, um, and it's a it's a murder set in busing era Boston, and it's so good. And very, very. He's as a writer, he's a very different beast from Connolly. But wow, this Dennis
3: Lehane guy
2: sure got it. <laughs> Breaking news from JT.
3: <laughs> well, I wish I could. I just wish I could fund you for that, but I've never read a word of Lehane. I mean, I, it's and a, really now, but good. But now I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah
2: it's interesting because uh, it's it. crimey, but his approach to character is different. His interest is is different. It's less whodunity and just really great. I, I'm going to dip into more. But anyway, Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. If you're looking for a starter Lehane, it certainly opened the door well for me.
3: All right. Well, listeners of this podcast and maybe Julia especially know that I am a sucker for like deep mood uh piano, music, jazz, but doesn't have to be Eric Seti, Liszt, uh, you know, I mean there's classical, it can mean just sort of anything, but the sound of because a piano is such a weird instrument when you think about it. I mean you you're you're sort of in a in a weird way for all of its kind of musical omnipotence, right? You can play an entire orchestral score with enough fingers on a piano. There there are certain tonal and structural limitations. You can't really the bending and the slurring and the kind of liquefying that you can do with an oboe, right? Or any kind of string instrument, a violin or a guitar. It's it, The harshness and angularity of a piano is modulated with a very special kind of touch and art. So if you can get a piano to liquefy and go moody, to me, that's just, there's something, it's drug-like, really, trance-like. It just has that effect on me, and I'm always looking for new stuff. The jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams is really notable for her inherent greatness, but for being the rare woman who in that period in the history of jazz really rose and conquered. I mean, she's one of the greats and is still not well known enough or familiar enough to you know average jazz fans or whatever, but she has a wonderful record I only just discovered called Zodiac Suite. A second minor fetish of mine is I really love like Such Sweet Thunder by Duke Ellington. I mean just just when or Gillespieana by Dizzy Gillespie, when there's a coherent whole and not just a series of cuts. Sometimes it can be overblown and, and corny to use our pet word this week, but but when it's not, it's just there's something so great about it. So Mary Lou Williams made this record called Zodiac Suite, I believe in the mid-40s. Uh, it's a trio and it, it, it just, it goes through Aries, Taurus, Gemini. I mean, she's trying to obviously to capture the mood of each one of the astrological signs and I just cannot, where's this album been my whole life? I don't know. It's just got that sweet sadness to it that's my thing my jam so check it out i think you will love it mary lou williams zodiac suite guys it's so fun to have the trio back together again really nice uh talking to both of you thanks julia
2: thank you thanks for holding down the fort
3: thanks dana thanks steve you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com slash culturefest and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our producer is Jared Downing. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.